0: Good afternoon to all of you. Good morning to and on the West Coast. I have a few announcements to make. I, first of all, I talked with a man this morning who uh, I met oh, two or three years ago, I guess, in Florida. And they've called a couple times over the intervening period, but I wanted me to pass along. Greetings from John and Joyce Rhodes. You don't know them, but a nice couple that I have met. They were down West Palm Beach at the time I first met them, and uh, they were bemoaning the circumstance in the church and how hard it is to get along with other people or even small groups and houses and homes, uh, can't see eye to eye and can't agree and can't get along. And we even here who basically agree on things don't always get along. But we're working on that, and slowly, I think, we're making progress. But anyway, they wanted to pass along their greetings to you, even though they don't know you. I want to have a meeting Wednesday evening at 7, and I'd like to start doing this, I think, on a weekly basis. Uh, Things are getting... Ready, it appears, for the final march to Armageddon in the world. And we have some preparations we need to make to be as ready as we can be for what is coming. I don't think spiritually, mentally, emotionally, when all this hits, anyone can be ready for what is about to be unleashed. On the other hand, we can, in faith and in hope and in trust in God, prepare ourselves the best we can for what is to come. Of course, spiritually is our first preparation and that's the one that really counts. But I think that God would have us look ahead to what is happening or about to happen, already is in some respects, and be as prepared physically as well as we can be. So I think it's important that we have some brainstorming sessions, some planning sessions and organizational sessions to be sure that we're using all the manpower, woman power, child power available to get ourselves as ready as we can before these things come in a storm. And to do that, we need to be more organized to accomplish it. And uh, maybe we can discuss various things for people on, on different committees to get certain things done and see it through to be sure that it happens. And we can have reports on projects each week as well, uh, what help might be needed. Uh, you know, or what materials or whatever else is needed to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. <coughs> Sometimes uh, I ask for research or information, and people do some of that. They research things or they hand me a pile of books, and my pile just gets higher and higher. <laughs> and what we really need, uh, in addition to that, is people to see some of those things through themselves, to actually accomplish it, because I have plenty to do, believe me, and a list that long of things that I need to accomplish. So uh, the more we can share the load and bear the burden together and accomplish things, the quicker we're going to come to a state of as much readiness as we can. So I want to start that this Wednesday at 7 And get your input, your thoughts, do some organizing, and also I'd like to discuss Purim as well, since we have decided that we should be doing that, as it is a biblical thing, not just a Jewish thing, and certainly we are spiritual Jews. Uh, Some would interpret that probably that we're headed toward Messianic Judaism or some form of Judaism, (laughs) which is not the case at all. Judaism is a pagan religion. It was pagan in Christ's day, and it's gotten worse since. So we're not going that direction. We are reading in the Bible, and I did give sermons on that, or a sermon at least, uh, which some who have not heard could read and hear and understand. But it's something that I don't believe has been done by any groups at least in the church, or at least not that I, to my knowledge, perhaps someone somewhere has. Well, someone somewhere has done almost anything you want to name. So we may not be the only ones doing it by any means, and especially those who are going more toward Judaism now. But since it is the first for us, I do believe we need to discuss uh, how to go about it uh, to please God as best we can. Things on the world scene are heating up very, very rapidly. Many of you are tapped into different websites which kind of keep a running commentary going on those. One of the most spectacular things I read this past week was that six of our major ports are being bought by the United Arab Emirates, or a company there, in Dubai. Those ports include New York. <laughs> now, that's not a major port. And Baltimore, New Jersey, those are all major ports. New Orleans, main port for up the middle of the country, along with Houston. Miami, another major port. And Philadelphia, And being bought in one package. I think these ports have been owned up to date by a company in London. We don't even own our own ports. But London's one thing. You're trying to keep terrorists out so you sell your major ports to Muslims? How much sense does this make? I wonder just how much will be imported into this country and eyes be closed. Another report I read said that Iraq is costing us $100,000 per minute. You, you, they say it'll be $2 trillion by the time it's over and done. And I don't, can't comprehend that, and you can't either, but $100,000 a minute, I can somewhat equate to. That's an awful lot of money going by every 60 seconds. They have to keep the printing presses rolling. Another thing that hit the news this last few days is that uh, Syria... Is getting rid of all their dollars. They're trading them in for euros, and will do all their trading henceforth in euros. Now, Syria Syria does not have a huge economy, and that might be just a little blip, except that others also have the same idea. And when they start dumping all those trillions of printed American dollars and electronic dollars that are out there, but are not even printed, what is going to happen? <coughs> and Iran is intent on going ahead with their Oil for Euros program and their exchange as well as nuclear developments. So I think the prophecies are being beginning to line up in what is going on in a very dramatic fashion. So the readier we can be, the better off we'll be. Another interesting note was that the Danish cartoonist who was drawing pictures of Mohammed Now has a million-dollar bounty on his head from a Pakistani cleric. That'll make you think about what you put in the cartoons, won't it? Million-dollar bounty for his death. Now I'll change gears just a little bit. This one says, "Howdy, partners!" We're rounding up the cow folks and having a hoedown, you hear? Round up is at the Tin Can Corral on February 25th at 7.30. Barbecue chicken and brisket will be provided. Please bring fixings such as tater salad, coleslaw, baked beans, and corn on the cob. Don't forget the desserts. Put on your western duds and come on down for playing, dancing, and good old western grub. We're going to have a stomping good time. Wonder who we get to stomp. <coughs> of course, no potluck next weekend since we'll have a meal that evening. Doesn't say it's time. Yeah, seven thirty. Seven thirty next Saturday night. Okay, I think that's about it for announcements. <coughs> we're interested. We're entering an interesting section here in Jeremiah thirty-five. Interesting in one sense because it isn't interesting. Uh, I mean, it it isn't frequent in the sense of some of the others that have direct prophecies that really catch your attention. (coughs) This is a a section (coughs) where it deals with people sort of wandering about, wondering what to do, uh, some confusion, mixed emotions and feelings going a lot of different directions is kind of what the next few chapters are about. So it, it's kind of in a one sense out of focus. Uh, I mean, there's a focus there, of course, in the Scripture, but it isn't like, you did this and therefore I'm going to do that, or a startling pronouncement in such a way as we might be expecting. And it could be dry to read in some respects but I think I can see a very prime reason that God does this. I'll give you a brief overview. We've been on the book of Jeremiah since the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, it's taken a long time to get through here. But this book starts out <clears throat> listing a lot of the sins and problems specifically that Israel had then and which Israel has today. And God's attitude against those things, along with prophecies of a coming captivity. It talks about how Israel would go into captivity for 70 years to Babylon, and tells them that it's going to be a long captivity. A false prophet died as a result of trying to tell them this is just going to be a short-lived thing. Don't worry about it. And they were told to build homes, families, jobs, businesses, because it would be a long captivity. Uh, we went through a section on false leadership, people not doing what they should be doing in terms of leading people in the direction they ought to be going, misusing and abusing them in chapter 23. Then we went through a few chapters the last couple of weeks on that are very encouraging, chapters 30 through 34 and so on, about how God will turn it around and turn everything into blessing for those who are willing to listen. Now, we have to view this book in the light of our present situation because we've pointed out several times in Jeremiah how this is written for the latter times and that we would understand in the latter times what it's talking about. Now, let's look at the experiences for a moment of the church in this end time. It began back in the late 20s, early 30s, when Herbert Armstrong was called, and went through a period of exploration, a period of study and understanding of what the Bible really says, as opposed to various religions that don't grasp at all what the Bible is about. Then it went through a period of growth, <laughs> a very slow growth, until the college began in '47. And from there, as people were trained to go out and uh, visit with people and build local congregations, it was a period of very, very rapid growth. And we were to be in the middle of Babylon work. Ezekiel 17 shows that Herbert Armstrong moved from Oregon down to a city of merchants, Los Angeles, a place where a worldwide work could really be done because of the broadcasting facilities and various other factors that were there that simply were not existent in Oregon. So there was a very rapid growth period. And then we began to have uh, some rebellions, uh, people leaving, ministers leaving in the 70s, and a certain amount of confusion. Uh, The government of California intervened and tried to shut things down. That was not accomplished. Well, we've been through the ups and downs of 70 years. And we got a case of the fat cats, especially from the 70s on, where we began to think that we were the finest thing around. We had jet airplanes and fine college campuses and, and all kinds of money and everything was going rosily, it appeared. But we became spiritually proud and vain and egotistical about it. And because of that lukewarmness and lack of devotion to God, he blew us apart. And we are still in the process of being blown apart. Now, most of the book of Jeremiah has to do with the predictions of what would happen and the captivity that would occur and that within the last 70 years. Now that has not been quite the parallel with what we see today. What we see is a beginning to truly understand these prophecies just as the 70 years is drawing to a close or has closed. And it is interesting to me that in this book, most of it is predicting what will happen and how that captivity will start and how God will begin to punish rather than what they went through in the 70 years. If you will notice from where we are in chapter chapter 34 to the end of this book, there's very little said about the 70 years of captivity they went through. It goes from about where we are now, talking about how it will come, and immediately then goes to the end of it. It shows some dithering about from chapters 35 to about 40 to 43. Then it shows some uh, proclamations against Israel's enemies. And then we get to chapter 50, and it talks about fleeing from Babylon. So those people, as we read this story, were just going into it whereas we have basically been through it. That is why you have a transition there that doesn't say much about the 70 years, but it talks about the coming captivity and then what to do when the end of it comes. So we are at the point now where the Babylon that we have come to live in, the society and culture of our very own nation here in America, is about to be destroyed as Babylon was destroyed by the Medes and Persians at the end of 70 years. And what to do at that time? Now, we have been living within Babylon for these past 70 years. We've been trying to get along as best we could and obey God the best we could under these circumstances and haven't done too well. That's why the punishment has come on the church today. But we tried to survive within the system, and lo and behold, it appears that we have been very much a part of the system. Now, isn't that what happened to those Jews? They didn't want to go into captivity in the Babylon, but they were taken anyway, and what did they do? They absorbed the ways of Babylon. The good did not rub off on the Babylonians, the bad of the Babylonians rubbed off on the Jews. And we find ourselves now at the end of 70 years with the world having rubbed off on us. We've been a part of this culture all through the history of the end time church. And now that we are trying to separate as per Jeremiah 50, and we'll get there soon, we're having difficulty with it. We are in a society that is full of lying and murder and thievery and adultery and fornication and covetousness and Sabbath breaking and idolatry in every form, lack of respect for father and mother, a society which dotes upon evil. And most of the entertainment that we have today has to do in some form with lying, robbery, infidelity, uh, misuse of monies, uh, illicit and weird sexual practices, homosexuality, those are the themes, and yet Isaiah tells us to hear no evil, see no evil, and how successful are we at coming out of those things. Do we watch for entertainment those things which God says are evil? Now, if you don't watch movies that glorify robbery, lying, cheating, embezzlement, adultery, fornication, and all those things, how many programs and movies can you watch? And have we, even in trying to come out, lapse back into some of those things? So, are we dithering around? Even as the church has come apart
1: and the world is
0: about to fly apart, are we acting indecisively? Are we seeking God with our whole heart? Or have we gone back to seeking some of the things of this world and our hearts are still divided? I think we need to do some very, very careful thinking about these things. and That's why I made that comment last week when I talked about the servants of Babylon uh, and or our servants and releasing them after six years and then we've taken them back. I don't need, think that that means necessarily we need to get rid of the dough mixers or some of the electronic things that we use. But What about those electronic things that create sin and acceptance of sin in our lives that we might watch or hear? Are those some of the servants of Babylon that we have turned back to and will not turn loose of? I think we need to think seriously about some of these things. With that in mind, let's go into chapter 35 of Jeremiah. This, to me, is a very, very interesting chapter, and it is here as a last-ditch attempt, in that sense, for God to help us recognize the honor and respect we need to give to him, and he uses a physical example, which is a very interesting one, to make his point. Chapter 35 of Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Eternal in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, say, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Eternal, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. It's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? In a way, right on the surface, God says to Jeremiah, Bring the Rechabites into the house of God. And offer them wine. Okay? Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaz- Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Eternal, into the chambers of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Ig- Igdali, Liah. If I stumble over those, I'm just trying to get past them. I'm glad we don't have names like that today. A man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Maasiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, pots full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink you wine. Now, how often does this happen, where somebody invites you into God's house, sets out pots of wine, puts cups there and says, let's all have a drink, drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, uh, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, neither you nor your sons, forever. Now, there is no command in the Bible that tells any family or anyone, for that matter, not to drink wine forever. And continuing... Neither shall you build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you be strangers. Now, isn't that kind of a strange thing for a father to lay upon all his sons and all of those who will come after him, that forevermore. They cannot drink wine, they cannot build houses, they cannot plant and have farms, and they must dwell in tents forever. Now, how many children in America today who had a father, who had a family meeting, and said, all right, sons, daughters, grandchildren, here is what I'm asking of you, and laid out those rules. How many children in America today would have enough honor and respect for their father that they would go that far in the way that they lived? Very, very few. Most would say, what has happened to that old fool? Wouldn't they? I mean, that's going pretty far, isn't it? to ask your children to forever follow through on those conditions. And they were doing it. I mean, a father can't even, for the most part today, get away with telling his kids don't watch MTV. Don't watch music videos that have all the sexual gyrations on them, whether they be country rock or whatever. Can't even get away with that in today's society. But he said, drink no wine, no houses, no vineyards, live in tents all your days, and those of your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and on. Verse 8, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, We, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, not to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our Father commanded us. That is, isn't to me, an incredible story. And it happened. Those people actually followed through. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land, that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. That's how they were able to be found and invited to the temple or the house of the Lord to be offered wine. God was making a point here. Then came the word of the Eternal to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell them in the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction to hearken to my words, says the Eternal? Now we're getting to the point here. These people were willing to lead a very unusual lifestyle because a parent desired it of them without giving any reasons, without referring to God having said you're to live this way, But that was the man's personal desire for his family forever. And he had no backup other than that was just his desire. So far as I can see in the story. We have a father in heaven. Well, we hearken to his words. Now, I don't know what Jonadab and did, what their lives were about. They were just human beings on this earth, and perhaps a little off-center or different, wouldn't you say? We have, as our Father, the God of all the universe, who created the heavens and the earth and everything that therein is, Stated how happy he is in life, how much he enjoys living eternally, and offers that to us if we will follow certain conditions and be willing to live the way he lives. He's not an oddball or off-center at all. I should think that there would not be anyone who would say, well, I don't want to do what God says. You know, put in that context, you'd think we'd all say, all right, let's go for it. That's not human nature. And that's the point God is making here. Verse 14, The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day, They drink not, but obey their Father's commandment, notwithstanding I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you've hearkened not to me. God told the church, you think you are fully clothed spiritually, but you're blind and naked and miserable, but most in the church have elected to believe that they are Philadelphians, and therefore that does not apply to them. God says, I'll spew you out of my mouth because of these attitudes. And so they find themselves being spewed right and left around the world, and still will not admit that they were spiritually proud and vain, egotistical, and so on, and live warm. Everyone, it seems, wants to cling to the idea that he or she is a Philadelphian, and that's just the way it is, therefore none of this applies. But it's happening to us all. How can we deny it? Except blame the other guy, which is what everybody does. Is that what the Recavites did? No. They just followed through with their father's desires. Uh Oddball, as they might seem to us today, and might have seemed to them. But they honored and respected their physical father far beyond what we are capable of in our society today. And far beyond what we do with our Heavenly Father. God says, I spoke to you early. Verse 15, I have sent also to you all my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them saying, Return you now every man from his evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them, and you shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor hearkened to me. You will not listen to me. Now what is going to happen to most of the people who are in the church or were in the church today? 90% are going to go into great tribulation and what will die of the sword will die of the sword and the plague and the famine and the pestilence. 10% will respond to God. 10% will see a need for personal change, not blame somebody else for all the problems, but see a need for personal change. I know that even as I speak week by week by week, and as Gordon does, and as Nelson does, and the others who give sermonettes here, that we sit and listen, and we can think of people in the room, or in the congregation, about the world, to whom what is being said applies. We have trouble taking it personally. Because we can see someone else's problem, and we tend not to apply it to ourselves. Or we have our objection, or our rebellion, or our attitude, whatever it might be, to what the words of God say. It's a personal thing. It says, return you every man from his evil way. This is not speaking to someone else, somewhere else, nor is it speaking to someone else in this room to whom you think it might apply. It's speaking to you personally and to me personally. That's what it's written for. Only those men who make the changes, who swallow their rebellion, who swallow their attitudes, to swallow their pride and their vanity and truly repent, are going to be included. It is a personal thing. God says, I spoke to you, and this word speaks volumes, and he he sent people to read it to you. But for one reason or another, we despise those not going to listen to either God or those he sends to read it to us. Verse 16, Because the sons of Jonab, the son of Rechad, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not hearkened to me, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, he invokes his title, his power, his history, his strength, his office. Behold, I will bring upon Judah and of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, because." You have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he has commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Eternal hosts, the God of Israel, he invokes his title again, his power, his strength, in a good way, not an evil way. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me for ever. Somewhere, today, within that body of people that God calls his own, I'll guarantee you there's a descendant of Recab and Jonadab. I don't know who it is, you don't know who it is, but there's someone there. God said so. Whoever it is does not know... Probably by any means, who they are, and they're probably not today following through on these things now, just in the all chance it is you, maybe you should move out in a tent and don't plant a garden this summer, and don't drink any wine from now on forever. I say that tongue- in cheek. <laughs> We'd all have to do it. We don't know who it is. But nevertheless, God said, because of the faithfulness they had shown at that point, and the absolute honor and respect that they as human beings gave to an oddball approach, that he would honor that, and there would be a reek to stand before him always and forever. Quite a testimony, isn't it? To that one commandment that says, honor your father and your mother. Honor your physical father and mother and the desires and wishes that they might have for you. Consider their teaching, their desires, very heavily. God honors that. Even a child is known by the attitude that he has. And certainly that it is used as an incredible example of how we should give honor and praise to our heavenly father who is not an oddball, who does know the best way to live, and has written for us the words of life. I I consider Jeremiah 35 a very, very important chapter in the Bible to display honor toward father and mother. And isn't that something that is missing in the end time, where God says to the father of the the hearts of the fathers and the children must be turned to each other, else God will smite the earth with the final curse. So this chapter highlights that, that there's a level between human beings, parents and children on the earth, that the hearts happen to be turned, not away from. If your parents have desires for you, our standards, our rules, should you not be as the Erequivites and follow those, especially since the rules your parents are giving are backed up by God's Word. And he holds the keys to life and death. He holds the keys to who will be delivered from this trouble that is looming on the horizon today and who will not be. And a lot of it has to do with our relationship between physical parents and children, between our relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers in the faith, and how they lived, what they did, and our relationship above all with our Father in heaven. Those three relationships, those three levels have to be fixed. And we need to take it personally. So as we get our relationship with our Father in Heaven right, we begin to live as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, and we treat each other as fathers, mothers, and children with a great deal of honor and respect. Those things have to be done. Rebellious children will not go into a place of safety. Rebellious children of God be they adults, will not go either. Nor will they go into the kingdom of heaven. God says no liar, no thief, no murderer, no idolater, no adulterer will go into the kingdom of heaven. I just recounted last week in talking about tithing and farming. God says, will a man rob God? Will we commit debris against almighty God? By not paying our ties to him, his tithes, that he owns and asks for? If we won't, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is that simple. It's one thing to rob from man. It's another thing to rob from God. Just how deep do our rebellious attitudes go? How many of God's words will we deny while claiming to be Christians? things some people need to think about. It is not about money that I could care less in one sense. But it's your relationship with God that is important. It's God's time, and you're robbing him. And if we're going to steal from God, that's a thievery he will not overlook. Sorry, it's just the way it is. We're not about money here. Today, since this little congregation began in 2000, do any of you ever remember me asking for donations in church, or to send more money in, or to make bigger offerings? None of you do. It's never happened. I doubt that it ever will happen. So we're not here about numbers, and we're not here about money. We're here about obedience to the laws of God, whatever they might be. All of them. And to honor our Father in heaven. All right, let's go on then to chapter 36. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, say, Take you a roll of a book. They didn't have books with pages in like we do. They had long rolls, scrolls. And right there in all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day, all these years, Jeremiah, that you have been preaching the destruction of the nation. I want you to go back and write down everything I have told you. Some, you know, put it all down. Put it in writing. Now that must have been an incredible job. The men have been preaching for a long, long time, decades. Write it all down. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do to them. That they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God is ever hopeful. God gives every opportunity, every mercy, every compassion, every chance for us to repent. For us to change our attitudes, to get rid of those set lips and jaws, whatever the issues we have might be. He gives us every opportunity. He's patient with us. There comes a time when he brings the evil. And if we do not personally change, it will come on us. So he says, I want you to write it all down. We're going to review the whole thing. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Eternal which he had spoken to him upon a roll of the book. Jeremiah just Went back through his memory, and all the times that God had spoken to him, words to say, to Judah, he repeated them, Baruch wrote them all down. Now, it was taught in those days. Hard to write. I didn't have modern computers with keyboards that you could just sit down and type it out as fast as the man spoke. It had to be done very painstakingly, very slowly, perhaps with a feather quill or something where you kept dipping and writing and dipping and writing. Very, very difficult shore. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up, I cannot go into the house of the eternal. He was in prison still. Therefore, you go and read in the roll which you have written from my mouth the word of the eternal in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also you shall read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the eternal, and will return everyone from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the eternal has pronounced against this people. God was giving them every chance because he understood how horrible war and captivity are. We as a people are somewhat insulated from that today, but it is about to come forth in great fury, And Americans will eat each other, and eat their own children and their afterbirth, as it says in this book. That was repeated as well. God says maybe they'll turn, maybe they'll repent. And Baruch the son of Neriah, verse 8, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Eternal in the Lord's house. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed the fast before the Eternal to all the people in Jerusalem. So it apparently was not day of atonement when it talked about the fast here, but a special fast that was proclaimed that the people might come together to hear what Jeremiah had to say. What he had been saying was written down to be read to them. Then read Baruch in the book, the words of Jeremiah, in the ninth month. In the house of the eternal, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the higher court, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the ears of all the people. When Micaiah the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the eternal, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber. And lo, all the princes sat there, even Elishama the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, and Nathan the son of Achbor, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. So everybody that was anybody, in other words. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. So the word got around. This, this is what Jeremiah had to say. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of uh, Nethaniah, the son of Shilami, or Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, or Cushai, unto Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the roll wherein you have read in the ears of the people, and come. said, Come on in. We're going to listen. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the roll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. He read it to the people. Now we're the important people here together. Sit down. Let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So Baruch read it in their ears. Hard to deny, isn't it, what has been read right to you? Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid both one and other. And said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all these words. This is a scary proclamation. Proclamation. Remember all the things that we've read back here that Jeremiah said would happen? You hear that all read all at once, one reading. It's be pretty scary. And we have people today to see what's going on in the world and in the church, and it's pretty scary, frustrating, and confusing, isn't it? I don't know what to do. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at his mouth? How did you... Come up with this. Then Baruch answered them. He pronounced all these words to me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. That's how this came to be. Then said the princess to Baruch, Go, hide yourself, you and Jeremiah, and let no man know where you are. They realized that what Jeremiah had written could stir great controversy, And he's very dangerous to their physical well-being. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi, or Jehudi should be, read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. So Baruch didn't read it, but this fellow did. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth, burning before him. So it was getting chilly, and he had to have a fire built. It came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, just a part of it, not all of it, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth Did not want to hear it. That's the attitude of most people today. They do not want to hear that these prophecies are going to come to pass, that it will involve them, and it doesn't involve all those lay of the sins out there, but it's a personal matter. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to be found to be at fault. They want to think that they can go on in whatever little organization or big one they're in, and everything will be fine for them because they are who they are, and they're with whom they're with don't want to hear That must apply to someone else. Can't be me. Can't be. And with an attitude like that, you simply won't hear. It's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. So it was all burned up. That was a lot of work to write all that down. All burned up. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of the servants that heard all these words. It didn't scare them. Who is God? Who is Jeremiah? Who is Baruch? You see, it's easy to reject a man and say you're not rejecting God. But God made it very clear to Samuel they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. So these people, probably as Israelites and Jews, would have accepted a word directly from God out of the heavens. But well, we're not going to listen to this man. He doesn't scare us. We're not afraid of you. No, they really weren't afraid of God who they weren't afraid of. Because God had sent the man. God still does that. But we don't fear men, do we? Even if they bring the word of God. And it's really the word of God and God that we don't fear. But the king commanded Jeramiel, the son of Amalek, and Sariah, the son of Azrael and all these people uh, about Jeremiah. But the Lord hid them. Ah. Then the word of the eternal came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah saying. This is going to probably frustrate Jeremiah and Baruch. Take you again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Moses comes down, throws them on the ground, now he's got to go back up there and fast forty more days and get them again. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this roll, saying, Why have you written therein? saying the king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause cease from thence man, and beast. That was a message the king simply did not want to hear. He would not accept it. He probably thought, Wow, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God wouldn't do that to us. We go to blah, 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 church of God. God wouldn't do that to us. We're so-and-so-and-so-and-so. God wouldn't do that to us. I don't want to hear that. How many churches of God scattered around the world today would want to hear a message about how these prophecies apply to them? Not very many. And even you and I don't like. But it does apply to us. And very few are willing to accept that. We don't want to hear the destructions coming on us. And yet Christ said, not one stone will be left upon another. It's all going to be torn down. The temple. And then Israel is going to be torn down. It's going to happen to both. No getting around it. It doesn't matter what group you think you're in and how safe you think you're going to be. If you don't obey God yourself, you're going to be a part of it. tell, who are those large trees, large congregations in Zechariah 11 talking about? How many large groups are there in the church of God today? It refers to them as large trees in the first verses. Not small ones. But there are a lot of people who by strength of numbers think that they are okay. They don't need to hear this. We'll see to whom it happens, when it happens, and it'll become clear on it, to whom God is speaking. All of us, all of us, came short of the glory of God and need to repent. There is no group you can go to that does not need to grow, change, overcome, and repent. you are just not around And yet there are organizations today who will tell you, if you'll just believe everything I say and do everything I say, you're fine. You don't need to grow and overcome. Just be here. It's dangerous because to every church, God said, to him that overcomes. That included Philadelphia, didn't it? Now, what it says back there in Revelation 3, it says even to Philadelphia, to him that overcomes. But people who consider themselves Philadelphians have always said it doesn't say anything bad about Philadelphia. Well, then why does Philadelphia need to overcome if there's nothing wrong with them? Maybe there wasn't as much overtly wrong, but then maybe we didn't realize we as Philadelphians were morphed into Laodiceans either. Because all those attitudes are extant today. Those are not just nose-to-tail prophecies for churches that existed through history. That may indeed have been the case, but they all are existent at the end. All those attitudes. And all have to overcome. But the king of Judah didn't want to believe it. Verse 30, therefore, thus says the eternal Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, as dead bodies will be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. So even though he was in the line of David and was sitting on the king of Judah, thenceforth it would come through another in the line of David. Now God had promised to David that there would always be a king in his line upon the throne. That is true to this day but it didn't come through Jehoiakim. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, upon the men of Judah, all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. You know, why? What did Jeremiah say that was so bad? He said, don't neigh after your neighbor's wife. He said, don't lie. Don't steal. Take care of the widows and the orphans. Treat everybody with a fair weight and measurement, and ju- you know, and justice to all. What's wrong with that? Is that so bad? That's all he said. It goes contrary to human nature. It goes contrary to our desires. That's what's bad about it to us. We like to do things that are contrary to God. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But human nature is illogical and doesn't make sense, does it? It is so greedy, so selfish, so introverted, that it just wants to do what it wants to do. And the rules all apply to everybody but me. We have a double standard. There's the rest of you and there's me. You know, I want to do what I want to do. And we think that somehow we're above it. But we're not. None of us. God says, I pronounced all these things and it will happen. Then took Jeremiah another robe, and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah had burned in the fire, and there were added besides to them many like such words. So this scroll was even longer than the first one, and probably included all the very last up-to-date things that Jeremiah said. And King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he, nor his servants, nor the people of the land, did hearken to the words of the Eternal, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. I wonder if Jeremiah ever had to fight discouragement and frustration. Would you think? Preached for decades over and over and over, the same things, and nobody listened. They just brushed it off. Nobody really wanted to change. We want God's good graces. We want God's protection. We want to be accounted worthy to escape all this that's coming, but we don't want to change. We want God to just take me as I am. How much Protestantism is left in us? How much of it is left in us? Where we think we can deny the words of God, go on living the way we have chosen to live, and expect God just to forgive us and let us be part of everything. That's not what he writes. It's not the way he is. Verse 3, And Zedekiah the king sent Je- Jehu, Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. We're not going to change, but could you send up a word for us? You know? Pray for me. Now, Jeremiah came in and went out among the people, for they had not put him into prison, so he was at that point, able to move around. Then Pharaoh's army was come forth out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans that besieged Jerusalem heard tidings of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Okay. The Egyptians send an army. Nebuchadnezzar is there besieging the city. Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers flee because of the Egyptians. And all of a sudden, all these Jews turn around to spit in Jeremiah's eye and say, ha! We didn't have to worry about Nebuchadnezzar, did we? <clears throat> then came the word of the eternal of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the eternal, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, that sent you to me, to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come forth to help you, shall return to Egypt and to their own land. They came to help. They're going to look around and say, I don't think I want a part of this. They're going to go back to Egypt. Now, that would have been hard for the king to swallow, wouldn't it? Help came, we're saved. We could come to this place and say, ah, we're safe here. Not necessarily. If you don't follow the ways of God, when it comes time to go to a place of safety, you will be left here and you will die here. And the Chaldeans shall come again and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Now, if Jeremiah had trouble being believed the first time, what was it going to be like to go out and say the same thing all over again? Man, why? Thus said he, Eternal, deceive not yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans shall surely depart from us, for they shall not depart. For though he has smitten the whole army of the Chaldeans that fight against you and men among them, Uh, but wounded men among them. Yet should they rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. It didn't make any difference what the Egyptians did. If they had basically destroyed the whole Babylonian army, God said, I pronounce this and it's going to happen. They'll get up out of their tents on the leg that they had left and they'll burn the city with fire anyhow. When God says it, it's going to happen, no matter what conditions might look like to you at the moment. And it came to pass that when the army of the Chaldeans was broken up from Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, then Jeremiah went forth out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to separate himself from there in the midst of the people. So he kind of made this next proclamation and then took off and hid among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the ward was there, whose name was Erijah, the son of Jehemiah, the son of Ananiah. And he took Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You fall away to the Chaldeans. <clears throat> then said Jeremiah, It is false. I will not. I fall not away to the Chaldeans. But he hearkened not to him. So Elijah took Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. He said, You're a traitor. You're going along with the Chaldeans. You're siding with the Babylonians. You're a worm. You're a mole. So he brought him to the princes. Wherefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah, smote him, and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. Now, when Jeremiah was entered into the dungeon and into the cabins, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, doesn't say how long, but a long time, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out, and the king asked him secretly in his house, and said, is there any word from the eternal? Isn't that interesting? Nobody listened to Jeremiah, but they knew somewhere in their hearts, in their minds, they had a feeling Jeremiah was sent from God. They knew on some level that that was true. Now, they didn't want to come right out and say it, They did not want to do what Jeremiah had to say, but secretly and privately, they knew in their hearts this man had something to say that came from God. So, take him out of the dungeon, bring him in quietly and secretly, and ask him, is there any word from God? And Jeremiah said, there is. You may not want to hear it, but there it is. For, said he, ye shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Pretty succinct, isn't it? Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, that's not bad enough for you. Here's something else for you to consider. What have I offended against you, or against your servants, or against this people, that you put me in prison? All I've told you to do is obey God, live the way you ought to be living anyhow, and you'll be protected. But if you won't, you're going into captivity. What have, what have I said that's against you? Where are now your prophets which prophesy to you, saying the king of Babylon shall not come against you or against this land? It's obvious they had come against it. Now, the Egyptians temporarily scared them off. But they had come. The things that Jeremiah said were coming to pass. Therefore, here now I pray you, O my Lord the King, let my supplication, I pray you, I ask you, I beseech you, I desire of you, be accepted before you, that you cause me not to return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. He wasn't being very well cared for in prison. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah into the court of the prison, not down in the dungeon, but in the court of the prison, and that they should give him daily a piece of bread out of the baker's streets until all the bread in the city were spent. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So he gave him that much because of this private counsel. At least he would get a piece of bread every day until all the bread was gone. Then Shephatiah, the son of Mattan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He that remains in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, but he that goes forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey, and shall live. Now, God had decreed that Judah would go into a 70-year captivity. So, that being the case, he said, if you are not willing to dwell in Babylon 70 years as a punishment, you will die. you only got two choices here. You either stay and die, or you go into the captivity in Babylon. Now, is that telling us, then, that we need to stay in Babylon? Well, let's read on in Jeremiah and we'll find that that is not the case. But we were to be in Babylon for 70 years here in the end time as a part of its culture and trying to separate from it. And we tried, didn't we? They always said, well, you don't have to physically come out of Babylon. You just have to come out spiritually. How well Did it work? How's it working for us? Not too well. You can't live in it, imbibe of its culture, and not be a part of it. Now, we're going to find, as we go on, that God says, get out of it. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, get out of it in every way. Are you ready for that? How well did we do dwelling in it? And how lukewarm toward God did we get? And how much a part of this culture did we become? And now says God says, get out of it. But boy, did we resist like stiff-legged, backsliding heifers. Well, it'll all come out in the wash, won't it? We'll either do it, God will bless us and protect us, or we won't do it. We'll find excuses, whatever they might be, and we're going to get caught up in it and destroyed in it. And it isn't far off now. It isn't far off at all. The financial crash, it appears, is almost upon us. And with the crash comes the American way of life. Down it comes. (laughs) We don't have long to wait. So God told them then, if you're going to live, you might as well go on into captivity and suffer the penalties that are there. Hopefully, they would learn that that was not the way to live, and that they ought to return to God. But after 70 years there, the great vast majority of them decided they'd stay at Babylon. They had adapted Babylonian ways, customs, and culture. They had a pagan book that the Jews still live, live by today that came out of Babylon, the Talmud. That's more a religion than the Bible is. So it survives till this day. Verse 3, thus says the Eternal, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, or his army, which shall take it. Therefore the prince said to the king, We beseech you, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war that remain in this city. He's weakening our whole army by telling us we're going to fall. So he needs to die. In the hands of all the people and speaking such words to them. For this man seeks not the welfare of his people, but the hurt. Am I here today trying to hurt you by reading these words to you? Is that the goal and the purpose? No. It wasn't Jeremiah's either when he wrote it. No. These words are given that we might live. We will respond to them the right way. Jeremiah begged the king to listen to him. The king didn't. Gave him bread, but that's all he did for him. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the son of Amalek, That was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. and in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. No water to drink. There had been prisoners there before him because that's what they did with really bad people, was put them down in that dungeon. So it was basically being lowered into an outhouse, if you will. That's what the mire was. And he sunk down into it. Remove the outhouse, drop yourself in the hole, and you're pretty much where Jeremiah was. What do you get for honoring God, telling people God's way? They always stone the prophets or drop them in the outhouse hole. Now, when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. He's down in the mire, there's no water down there, and he's not getting any food. Somebody stood up for it. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from there thirty men with you, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he died. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, <laughs> went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took their old cast clothes and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon of Jeremiah. In other words, they made an old clothing rope. Uh, you know, people make... In the movies, they used to make ropes out of sheets to get down out of uh, hotel rooms and so on. Same type of deal. And he bet Malak. The Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, wasn't a Jew that came to his rescue. It was an Ethiopian. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took Jeremiah the prophet to him into the third entry that is in the house of the eternal. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask thee a thing, hide nothing from me." See what I meant about people kind of dithering around? Didn't know what to do, really. Uh, I don't really believe that we're going to fall. I don't believe Babylonian will come against Judah and destroy God's people. But I keep thinking, I wonder what's going on here. So I'll ask him. I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll try this. I'll try that. I want to do what I can, sort of pretending, to save, uh, to save myself. So, so I'll ask you a thing. Don't hide anything from me. I, I want to hear the truth. Oh, you want to hear the truth? Okay. Here's something to work with. Yeah, right. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? Let's see what the conditions are here before I'm completely honest with you, king. And if I give you counsel, will you not hearken to me? I mean, what good is it going to do me to tell you? Are you going to listen to me? So Zedekiah the king swore secret to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, but made us this soul, I will not put you to death. Neither will I give you in the hand of these men that seek your life. I guess he didn't address the question of, will you listen to me? He, he, he did address, I won't kill you. Then said Jeremiah to Zedekiah, thus says the eternal God of hosts, the God of Israel. If you will assuredly go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then your souls shall live, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you shall live in your house." Seems pretty simple. Go out. Give yourself up. They won't burn the city. You go into captivity, but you'll live and your house will live. But if you will not go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape out of their hands. One more chance, given. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hands. And they mocked me. He was more afraid of people than he was of God. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Obey, I beseech you, the voice of the eternal, which I speak to you, so it shall be well to you, and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to go forth, this is the word that the Lord has showed me. And behold, all the women that are left in the king of Judah's house shall be brought forth to the king of Babylon's princes, and those women shall say, Thy friends have set you on, and have prevailed against you. Your feet are sunk in the mire, and they are turned away back. So they shall bring out all your wives and your children to the Chaldeans, and you shall not escape out of their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Well, this would impact his wives, his children, his grandchildren. You know what? Gentile peoples do when they take them captive? But if the princes hear that I have talked with you, and they come to you and say to you, declare to us now what you have said to the king, hide it not from us, and we will not put you to death. Also, what the king said to you, the king was scared to death. I I don't want any of this conversation repeated. This is just between us, okay? Okay. Then shall you say to them, I presented my supplication before the king that he would not cause me to return to Jonathan's house to die there. Then came all the princes to Jeremiah, as predictable, and asked him. And he told them according to all these words the king had commanded. So they left, him, left off speaking with him, for the matter was not perceived. So they set up something ahead of time to tell a story uh, to avoid them knowing what the king had asked and what Jeremiah's answer was. So Jeremiah abode in the court of the prison till the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. There's real leadership from King Zedekiah, isn't it? Waver, waffle, hide, do it behind the scenes, try to figure out what to do. Isn't that kind of where the church is today? Nation's about to go into captivity, and the leaders of the church and the people are sort of milling in confusion. Not really knowing what to do. You and I have looked at many scriptures over the last few years that tell us what to do now. Some listen, some do not. Some hear, some do not hear. Some act, some do not act. they will all come out in the wash. I think that these chapters are put in here to give us some insight of ourselves today. So I think that's a good place to start rather than going against, uh, going into chapter 39. We'll stop there for the day because the siege of Jerusalem was about to start. So all the things that Jeremiah said would happen are beginning starting with chapter 39.